Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 200. It's nice to be forgiven. Too bad I need so much of it. This week, we're discussing season 3, episode 20 of Battlestar Galactica, Crossroads Part 2, and season 7, episode 3 of Buffy, Same Time, Same Place. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay, so uh, here we are, the the finale, uh, season three yeah. of uh, BSG. Um, and, like, I mean, obviously, like, you know me, I don't always remember everything real well (laughs) um (laughs) or at least like the order of stuff but this is like i mean obviously this is iconic uh it's you know baltar's trial and Mm -hmm. of course the ending um very memorable so yeah yeah. um lots of good stuff to talk about lots of stuff and i know like even like last week i think after we recorded like we were kind of talking about like oh it's kind of like I wasn't sure, like, how much to, like, go into, like, what happens next or, like, mm. I mean, I know we try to, like, not spoil it or whatever, um, if that's even the right word to use, like, you know, to kind of talk only about things that have happened in the show. But, like, because we both seen this and kind of knew right. what was coming up, it, it's harder, I think, for this than, like, any of the other shows where mm-hmm. um, at least, right. like, when one of us hasn't seen it, there's, like, a bit more incentive to not talk about it. but. Right. When we've both seen it already, it's kind of, it's a lot harder to not, like, kind of go into detail or at least hint about things. Well, and that's a good point because I want to try to make, not spend all the, I'm sure we're going to have plenty to say, so try not to delay too much longer. But I do want to occasionally try to remember what we talked about last time and make reference because I think there are a lot of moments where one of us said something and in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, I, you know, I would really like to talk about this thing that somebody says in part two or this thing that happens, Um, not even just about like the big final five reveals, but also just things in the trial, you know, things that turn out to be significant or whatever. Um, sure. So if, if we can remember like, oh yeah, we, we said this or we mentioned this and it, it you know, comes back to be significant here. Sure. Um, you know, I think we can try to retroactively do that a little bit. Yep. Um, but yeah, so I think structurally this episode actually isn't terribly complex. I mean, there's a little like interleaving of some of the, plot points and stuff but it's there's not they're kind of still discrete pieces there's not mm-hmm. like a lot of like yeah like there's the stuff of like the trial and then there's the stuff sort of around the trial mm-hmm. and then like what i've the name that i've adopted um of the penultimate four um mm-hmm. where like they all kind those all kind of happen in in their own discrete pieces they're they're not really that interleaved so um time-wise they're sort of interleaved throughout the episode but not like actual relevance to each other if that makes sense yeah sure um so i think yeah just going through it like we'll talk about 
um, like the trial first and then kind of the stuff that happens post-trial sort of not even fallout from the trial I mean a little bit of that but like also with like the blackout and the Cylon attack which are kind of their own things and then like and then kind of go back and talk about the four the the big reveal and um of course the music uh yeah which is such a big part of that at the end there so um yeah so that's just kind of structurally not quite following the episode but kind of following each piece of the episode um Mm -hmm. along the way um so for the trial um and i'm including it kind of the conversation the bookend conversations with rosalind and adama um yeah so you get like adama shaving and and cutting himself and like you know the call with rosalind and and both of them kind of admitting like they don't want to go into their day (laughs) um you know maybe for different reasons but but kind of maybe not for different reasons either like i so one of the things i kind of wondered this watching through was how much they're both sort of um i don't know if channeling is the right word but like kind of feeling the the portent of a verdict that they don't want like if if Mm. if maybe they're both sort of feeling like you know and 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 this is true too i think with um sort of the the strategizing that we see a little bit later with lee and baltar and romo um of like actually i'm just thinking of this now so like sorry i'm sort of like choppy with my thoughts here but like Roslyn and Adama are maybe feeling bad because they know it's kind of going well for Baltar, mm-hmm. like better maybe than they expected. And, mm-hmm. and like, you get that same sense from Baltar, but like both Lee and Romo are like, because it's going so well, it's not going well. Like it's that right. opposite right. thing that, that Baltar is like confused about, like, wait, because I'm actually doing pretty good at, at me, that's a bad thing. Like what's right. going on? You're, you're pissing off the judges because you're actually doing well. Right. In trial. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or at least like the judges who are already against you, like Adama, right. like, right. Like you're not doing yourself any favors by doing so well, so to speak. Um, right. And like, I wonder how much like Adama and Rosalind are kind of feeling that like, I don't, I mean, it's not the same thing, but maybe the inverse thing of like, Right. This is going way better than we expected, and that's kind of making us angry, <laughs> or right. or not well, wanting. Yeah, yeah. To to put it in modern parlance, they don't want to adult today. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. like that's the, you know, thing yeah. that they have to contend with, and like neither of them really wants to deal with it right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think there's. I think both of those are true. Um, from a kind of how the trial is going perspective. Yeah, I think they're noticing the same thing as Baltar is, is that like, oh, actually, this is going better than I thought. And we blew, you know, referencing Rosalind and Ty's testimonies, we blew their two key witnesses, you know, that like we made Rosalind look like, you know, either a religious nut or a drug addict or both, (laughs) Um, you know, and... um, and, and you're not sure and, which is which. And and we announced to the fleet that 
you know, she has cancer. So she's this dying president of a dying fleet. And so they're all distracted with that. So that went well. And then um, Ty just, I mean, came off looking like a nut and a drunk and a murderer and a hypocrite and whatever else you want to call him. So I think probably Roslyn and Adama can't have, that can't have escaped their notice that like, oh, um, actually our, you know, our big witnesses about how, what an evil person Baltar is just like did not go according to plan. Um, But then from the personal side, I think, it is a continuation of this, I'm going to call it the like lay down your burden theme of just tiredness of like, mm-hmm. we we can't even, we can't adult anymore. And like, I feel like that's a growing exponential thing across the show of like, and maybe there are times where they become recharged for some reason or they get a rest or they get a new motivator or they get a second wind or something that keeps them going but there is just this sense of you know like that's kind of the first time and she she gets up she does it but that's really the first time you get from Rosalind just this notion of I don't really want to do this at all um sure you know and even if they're kind of teasing about it there's still a real truth there that they're feeling yeah certainly Um, So, yeah. So I think both of those things are true for them. Yeah. And, and like that, (laughs) I mean, of course there's the funny, you know, aspect of like Adama, you know, telling her to get her fat, lazy ass out of the rack and, you know, kind of the pseudo military drill sergeant wake up call, you know, Mm -hmm. aspect. But I mean, I don't know. There is that thing too of like, even he's like, like, you know, how routine is it for him to like shave every day? And he's like, cuts himself. And like, mm. not that it's like, all right, it, you know, yeah, you nick yourself when you're shaving every now and then, like it happens. But also that thing of like, like there's maybe a distractedness or a, mm. a like, yeah, he's not maybe up to his like usual precision, you know, mm. Uh, quality, whatever, whatever you want to call that, you know, mm-hmm. aspect of his maybe usual character of of making sure things are in right tip top working order shape kind of thing. Right. Anyway, so yeah, all of that to say, there is this sense of like, yeah, not wanting to adult, not wanting to kind of see the outcomes of where the trial is going to take them and, and how mm-hmm. everything's going to shake out and really just kind of being, uh, having a lot of anxiety about where things are going. Mm-hmm. Um, again, all understandable maybe in a way, but also like not, not necessarily very characteristic of either of them. Sure. Um, so yeah, so and so I brought up the sort of the strategizing between Lee and Ramon Baltar. Mm-hmm. Um and and you get this sort of different personalities of like Baltar almost giddy with how well things are going. Um and like Lee being 
you know, the one to sort of suggest like, well, what if we go for a mistrial? Like, like Lee sort of showing his, his prowess, his sort of um, instinctual prowess, I guess I would mm. put it. Like Romo's obviously like the trained lawyer, right? But sometimes right. that's, I don't know, like maybe that could be a hindrance, right? Like sometimes it's, sometimes it's better not knowing things. Like sometimes you might have ideas that you wouldn't otherwise have if, if you know all the ways that things can go wrong mm. or that they're not supposed to go, um, which is kind of hinted at even, I didn't think of this before either, but it's kind of hinted at in, in Lee's long speech about rules and the system and, and in particular the system's breakdown. Mm -hmm. Like, you kind of get the sense that um, Romo is sort of against the idea of a mistrial, at least initially, because like, like it doesn't make sense. Like it, from a legal like maneuvering perspective, it doesn't necessarily make sense to go for it mm -hmm. un until he learns what Lee knows already. Right. Like then it's like, right. Oh, like, but even then it's like, it's sort of a game time decision, right? He doesn't, mm -hmm. he still doesn't like, he's not really on board with it until he sees like, and I'm kind of getting into the trial itself, but like mm -hmm. until he sees Gata's testimony and puts right. Lee on the stand to like prove that there's prejudice against his client. Like right. even, even the sort of lawyerly aspect there is like, right. Eh, like it might not work. It could be a bad idea and whatever. And it's really kind of Lee who has to, from a from a sort of newbie idealist perspective, you know, kind of mm -hmm. say, hey, maybe this could work. And Right. Well and, and you even and, get interesting that, that sorry, I was just gonna say interesting that ultimately they don't actually end up asking for a mistrial anyway, but it's that it's the calling for a motion for mistrial is that gets Lee on the stand, which ends up getting the favorable verdict that Baltar wanted anyway. So it's kind it's really messy, like Mm -hmm. You know, if sort of the theme of the trial portion of this episode is that, like, there is a systematic breakdown in the legal system and that it all is sort of kangaroo court-like, mm -hmm. then, like, yeah, like, nothing really works the way that, like, an actual court case should work. But it does kind of all resolve itself in a way. Right. Right. And, and that Lee... Whether, yeah, like, like you kind of said, he follows some instinct that he might not be able to really intellectually articulate. And he follows um, the, just what the textbook says. Like, you know, and sure. that's, that's part of it too, is not even that he understands the legal argument of why a mistrial is something that they would be qualified for or should go for, but just from the pure textbook statistic of, if you do this, it raises your acquittal by whatever, 20% or something. Um, sure. And so like just from a purely, hey, this can't hurt kind of point of view. And it's like it's kind of up to Romo to make that make sense within the legal framework, like to, within the sense of their actual defense argument. Mm -hmm. But it's Lee just kind of saying, you know, well, the textbook says this, so maybe we should try it. And he doesn't necessarily why understand why it's a good idea, but, you know, as the newbie coming in and just kind of pointing out, hey, maybe this is a thing to try. 
Um, sure. So yeah, like he's, it, you know, coming at it from a different point of view. Um, and to, you know, not to get into his long speech too much either, but um, how much of this theme of the system is in breakdown um, was articulated by D in the previous episode, you know, which is like a big talking point of Lee's here is that what system, you know, like, why are we pretending that we're following the, the system and the system is getting justice when we really don't have one anymore. And we're kind of kidding ourselves if we pretend that we do. Um, I don't know that he and D see eye to eye at the end of this or that either of them has reversed their opinion of Baltar or his guilt or innocence. But I feel like he took some of what she said and is agreeing at least with that aspect of it, of this notion of the system being um, needing to be taken apart and put back together. Um, sure. So there's an echo there that I think is, whether or not he realizes it, I think he's echoing her in that moment. Yeah. No, I think- And, and Romo, and Romo who knows the system, but is happy to throw it out the window. Or like you said, apply it in really- um, messy and kind of uh, improvisational ways that he's not he's not so officious that he's only going to do what is the right lawyerly thing he will go for that left field move if he sees the opportunity yeah like but like taking Lee's suggestions or putting him on the stand so he can think outside the box Yes, though I think one of the things with like with Romo is that like he's he's the kind of guy who bends the rules or like tries to circumvent the rules or or what you know however you want to describe that. But like when the rules aren't being enforced or played or or even like don't exist at all, like that's heart right like, right like it, he didn't start it yeah like there's a sense in which like even like the the rogues who are like playing with the rules or whatever like still need the rules in order to do their thing right mm -hmm. whereas like lee yeah like he might be reading the textbook thing but he he doesn't like know the rules like he doesn't really like know mm -hmm. what's going on he's just like i don't know can we try this and right yeah so I right. think there's like, there's an yeah, interesting in order, aspect of like yeah like even though like he fools around with the system Romo is still kind of part of the system like his very well yeah and in order for him to yeah in order for him to manipulate it he has to know the rules inside right. and out like right. so there has to yeah. be a system to manipulate the system right right um or even to circumvent it. <laughs> like you can't circumvent something that doesn't exist. Right. So I, you kind of, I, I, I want to call them Baltar's dream team to make a reference to a real world trial, but like to get the kind of, um, the innocence of Lee's perspective of like the outsider coming in just off the cuff, how about this and throwing out ideas that might make sense or not. 
And then you put that together with Romo's kind of wiliness and knowledge of the system and how to throw it out and manipulate it when you need it to. That's the, that's the dream team. That's kind of what uh, ends up working out for Baltar is the combination of those two. Sure. Um, so I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on Gata's testimony. Um, he, he claims he was there when Baltar signed the 200, you know, person kill order, um, which of mm -hmm. course he wasn't. We saw it. We know that Baltar had a gun to his head, like, mm -hmm. and on the one hand, like, I mean, it's that thing of where, like, you can maybe condemn Gaeta for mm -hmm. lying and stuff. But on the other hand, like, you know, people were doing the same thing to him not that long ago, like, mm -hmm. putting, you know, about to throw him out in airlock, you know, based on lies and misconceptions about his role, too. So, like, mm -hmm. I don't know that, you know, to go along with the idea of, like, how much people are being forgiven for stuff. Like, I don't know that what he says, even though it is complete fabrication complete lie mm -hmm. <laughs> like i don't know that it's any worse kind of kind of lee's point like it's not any worse than anyone else mm. you know yeah um yeah i mean i think it's pretty um i mean it's a turning point in the trial but i think it's a pretty huge moment from his point of view as as a character because i sure. feel like up until and I think you're right. I think you can absolutely, if not justify what he does, at least defend it from a, I understand why he would do this kind of point of view of like, right. given what he's been through, what's been done to him, given his relationship with Baltar, given that he knows what Baltar is guilty of, even if he wasn't in the room when that thing happened, I you can imagine yourself into his position and say... I get why he does that, right? Like there's a defensible or at least a sympathetic aspect to it. Right. Um, I think the like, even like what kind of jumps out to me though is I feel like up until this point, if there's a kind of, I know nothing about this, but I know these terms. If there's a kind of, um, what do they call those character alignments in D&D &D, when it's like, lawful good oh yeah, yeah, yeah. i feel like um, if there's a lawful good character it's been gata right who like not only does the right thing but does it according to the rule book um like even more than like i feel like hilo is the like crusader for good but he like will totally do his own thing according to his own conscience throw out his orders mm -hmm. when they conflict with his conscience whereas i feel like that's not been Gaeta. Gaeta's been like, I'll find a way to work within the system to do the right thing. Um, unless it's like, I mean, rebelling against Cylons, spying on Cylons is one thing, but not against other people. Like, you know, he follows orders he doesn't agree with. He'll rat on Ty for exposing the election fraud. He'll even let people throw him out the airlock if they want to. Like, he's not been a rebel. And to have a moment where it's like what he might consider the right thing, 
but completely going against the right thing in terms of a legal system of like, you don't get on the stand and perjure yourself. Like, even if you think you're right, even if you are right, <laughs> like, I feel like sure. that's a big step outside of the lawful neutral or lawful good box of doing the right thing in the right way. Um, and I feel like that's a significant departure. Um, and I think like what kind of amuses me about it too, is I feel like it's yet another example of Gaeta feeling like he has to clean up Ty's messes. Like, I wonder to what extent this is premeditated, like of like, I think he's looking at the same stuff that Baltar and Roslyn and Adaman are seeing and saying, um, all of the witnesses are being blown out of the water and mm -hmm. somebody has to put the nail in the coffin. And he can do that by saying that he was there, that not just saying he did this terrible thing, but I have proof and I'm a credible source and you're not going to catch me drunk or taking drugs. So here's my, you know, my bulletproof testimony, which doesn't turn out to matter in the end. But I think that's the reasoning is he has the power to, you know, condemn Baltar. And so he takes it. Um, sure. So, and I think that's the, like, the look between him and Romo of like, come at me, bro. Like there's this look of like, do your worst. And then Romo's decision of like, well, if he's going to lie, doesn't matter what questions I ask him because we're no longer talking about the truth. We're talking about a fiction. So kind of deciding it's not worth it, which ironically is what pushes them for the mistrial. So it kind of backfires in the end because that's what decides them to say, we're not going to win this way. We have to win another way. Right. Right. Um. And it is painful because it's like, that's the one thing that Baltar did right <laughs> is he did protest. <laughs> it's like the one actual right. noble moment of he tried to, he had a gun to his head. He tries not to sign the death warrant. And that moment gets taken from him. Because nobody else was there. Nobody, if Gaeta says it happened, then it happened. Nobody can say otherwise. Um, right. Right, which again was exactly, like, I mean, the only difference with Gaeta was that, like, he had that one little bit of knowledge, right, that Tyrrell also knew about the dog dish and, and whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, like, that's the only thing that saved him. Like, other than that, like, there's no... In that case, like, Tyrrell vouched for him. But, mm -hmm. like, in this case, Gaeta's not vouching for uh, right. uh, Baltar in the same way. So it's that... Right. You know, that's the one, like, difference, basically. Right, right. And, I mean, he wasn't there, so he doesn't know that Baltar protested so again you can defend that I, I probably he believes that this is what happened but he doesn't know it for sure right and yeah 
So it like, you know, again, it's, it's a sympathetic move, but it's also like, Ooh, that's a dark decision. I think for, sure. for Mr. Gaeta, you know, like, I, I feel like that's a departure in behavior to kind of, and, you know, when people have tried to kill you with not knowing the full story, you would hope maybe you would um, understand what that feels like. But, you know, maybe without realizing it, he's kind of perpetuating that same behavior of assuming guilt rather than presuming the innocence of the person. Right. And maybe he has much more reason to than anybody did for him. But still, I think, you know, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, okay. So, yeah. So, Gaeta lies. Uh, certainly, Baltar knows he's lying. Uh, Romo... And yeah. <laughs> and Lee seem to believe that he's lying as well. Like, I mean, maybe they don't have as much of a handle on what happened as Baltar mm -hmm. does. I mean, not maybe, obviously they don't. But like, um, that prompts the motion for mistrial, which then, you know, is like, well, you know, what evidence, blah, blah, blah. And he says, well, one of the judges is clearly prejudiced. It's Adama, and to prove it, I'm going to call Lee to the stand. Um, mm -hmm. Which, yeah, like, I, you know, again, like, we're throwing out rules here. So, like, having defense yeah. counsel testify is clearly not something that you would normally do mm -hmm. um, or would even be allowed. Like, like, that almost seems itself like would be grounds for mistrial, mm. you know, like misconduct or something on defense counsel's part but um but everybody's like at this point yeah well and the prosecutor what the heck obviously the prosecutor doesn't want that to happen um right but adama wants to hear his son <laughs> you know yeah which is fine well, like, you know get up and say that to my face you know right well that's kind of my my question too is like what does like what does Adama really think is going to happen here? Like, he seems to think, I guess, that Lee isn't actually going to say anything. But I'm not sure why. Like, right. like they've already had like their big blow up, and like I mean, yeah, Lee doesn't want to, but also like, like if anyone is. Oh, so we can get so alignment is what it's called by the yes, way. The yes, yes, thank you. Um, I feel like Lee is more of a of a lawful good than even Gaeta, mm -hmm. probably. Sure. Um, I mean, cheating aside, on his yeah, sure. Uh, like his marital issues are what they are but like i mean at least from a from a like professional from, from like a view. lawfulness mm -hmm. aspect um 
yeah so anyway like like and adama knows that and like this is if he's being called and is taking an oath and getting up there like like i don't know that there's anything in Lee's history or character that would suggest that he would say anything other than the truth. Mm. Right. Like, like I'm trying to think like if there's some big thing that I'm missing again, except for maybe like cheating on his wife, but like, (laughs) but like, but again, like that's like, that's like personal. That's not like, right. Legal. In his, you know, in his duty, as far as a respect for, duty and the military and the law like i don't i can't think of anything that would suggest because even like even even him like his insurrection against ty Mm. is like like you can cast that in a it's it was appropriate from sort of the right thing to do like from from a morally good perspective and like protecting the integrity of the military and like all of that like right. it's but i guess you, you and can ma- even maybe, argue that maybe this is me not understanding the alignments but i would think the fact of doing going against the the your orders and the rules and the system in the interest of what's right is what knocks you out of that category that you're somebody that follows no because your, because you have it, it's not just lawful it's lawful good Right. It's it's using it's using because in that instance, like because there are military protocols about how to uh, remove a superior officer from duty. Right. Like, so. So like like I feel like that would be. That would be something you could argue as like it's within the bounds of the law and it's doing this for the right reason. He didn't. Sure. you, You know what I mean? Like like I think you can still make that argument. Um, sure, sure. No, that's a good point. So it, it's not just like, it's not just that you always follow the law, but that you follow it for a good moral purpose. And that that doesn't mean you don't make mistakes or misinterpret the law or whatever, mm-hmm. but that you feel that following the law is generally the best thing to do. And that even in times when like, it might seem like you're disobeying the law, it's like, it's more an interpretive thing about the law mm-hmm. and that you're, you're right. interpreting the law, it in a the way. The law was unjust. And so, right, that yeah. you're interpreting it in a way that's the more moral of ways that it could be interpreted, perhaps. Like, sure. Again, like, you might still make mistakes, you might misinterpret things, but it, it would be that idea of, like, you generally follow the law because you think it's the right thing to do. And when mm-hmm. it seems like you're not following the law, it's actually more that other people are misinterpreting the law and mm-hmm. you're interpreting it in a way. So what, I sure. mean, we could go back and forth. Like, I mean, there's arguments about what characters fit into which alignment. Yeah. And, and all of not that, that all like, so, and there's no, never a perfect sort of, you know, example anyway, but no. And that's not even like something we need to get. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Real no, sidetracked we, by. we but could like, go maybe, maybe, yeah, so maybe we can have an opportunity to discuss that in a separate episode at some point. Sure. Um, but, like, my only point is that, like, I think, by and large, like, 90 plus percent of the time, 
or more like you know lee fits into that lawful good category insofar mm-hmm. as like like he's principled he's gonna follow the rules and he's gonna do it for a basically good moral purpose mm-hmm. good moral reason and mm-hmm. um that includes like standing up to his father and like mm-hmm. not being afraid to say what he thinks and mm-hmm. um and and that's even like like Roslyn has even encouraged him to do that mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny because like like even so calling back to like last week like with her cross examination right like you know she calls him you know captain apollo again and was like oh didn't that have such a nice ring kind of implying that he's lost his way right he's fallen from that ideal but, yeah but he hasn't really and that's the thing is like i think of the different characters like he's probably the least changed as far as that sort of moral and and mm-hmm. visionary idealistic whatever you want to call it aspect of his personality is maybe the tactics he's changed maybe even like the people he support has changed and the Mm -hmm. situation and all of that but like i don't i don't think that like sort of the core of who he is has changed and i would argue that like it's Roslyn and adama and some of these others who have really lost their Mm -hmm. you know morality in that regard and like her chastisement is actually more of a confirmation to him of like that Mm -hmm. he's in the right because like she has encouraged him in the past to like not to like say things even when he disagrees like with Mm -hmm. what might be going on or what they might have to say like that his purpose is to advise on the law and the military and like be that sort of guiding light or whatever and like this is him still doing that it just happens right. to be that like what he's saying is not what they want to hear, hear. Right. Yeah. right well yeah she and adama like together right. um right so anyway like we've talked a lot about the trial <laughs> and we have a lot more to go so i don't know mm-hmm. like i mean obviously like he has his big speeches um mm-hmm. Well, like his yeah, big and speech I just wanna... and, and sort of the, the smaller bit after that. But um, yeah, are there particular points you want to pick out of that? Or Well, ju- I mean, in, in general, I think um, I haven't timed this, but I think other people have that the, the monologue clocks in at like six minutes or something. So like just this like, you know, sure. extended long, like just him talking, which... Um, I think is super well done. Like it's probably my favorite Lee moment of the series is like this moment on the stand. Um, Yeah. And I mean, we could probably, maybe we can pick out one or two highlights. I mean, we could probably talk for a long time about the content of what he says. um, And maybe we don't need to do that because we do have other things, but um, um. I don't know. I guess like you alluded to it earlier, I guess what jumps out to me is this notion that um, in this situation, this isn't to say in a nihilistic, like there is no post-truth kind of way, um, but like in the situation that they're in, um, can they have a fair and impartial trial? Is it possible? Because as the 
prosecutor said in her opening statement, there's not a single person who hasn't been affected by this whole, you know, process of events of genocide and occupation and, you know, being chased by Cylons and being uh, unhappy with Baltar's presidency. Like nobody is neutral from that. You cannot, you, it's not possible to have a neutral jury come in and, mm-hmm. you know, like that thing where they ask the jurors, have you been the victim of a crime? Have you had this happen Do you? Are you yeah. related to anybody that's this? You can't do that. There's nobody in the fleet that wouldn't be able to put up their hand and say, I'm disqualified from this particular trial. So I feel like the fact that Lee kind of homes in on that and really drives home, like you said, all the ways that people have been forgiven for um, the things that they've done wrong. And and his kind of litany of this is what Rosalind's done. This is what Adama's done. This is what Ty's done. And then finishes with himself and says, right. here are my sins. And, you know, I'm the coward. I'm the traitor. But I'm forgiven. And that to then put all that onto Baltar, as he says, Baltar may be guilty of some of the things that he's being accused of, and he's certainly not an innocent person. But to forgive everybody except him does turn into a scapegoating situation. Um, So I think, I feel like that's really well articulated. Um, the way that they kind of focus that that's the problem here is that there's really no neutrality, which is why the whole thing becomes the kangaroo court, because everybody has the outcome already in their mind and they're just sort of trying to shape it to fit what they already believe. Mm -hmm. Sure. Which I think a lot of it we said in the last episode, it's just that now Lee's saying it. It's all the stuff you're, as you're watching it, it's the stuff you're thinking about. And then it just takes Lee to get up on the stand and say, here's the problem. And let me explain it for you so that you'll understand it. Yep. Um, And so it works. Right. Like, I mean, ultimately, so they, you know, uh, Romo rests after that. No more questions. No more. He's like, I don't want to. There's no reason really at this point to prolong. Go out on a high note. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. So they go and, and come back and he's acquitted. Three mm-hmm. to two. Um, and of course, you don't know the breakdown of that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know. As we learn later, we, you know, Adama is one of the ones who voted for acquittal and, and presumably is the tiebreaker, right? Right. Um, at least that, that seems to be the case. That like, seems, yeah. He, he, he's the swing vote. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, yeah, like there's, you know, chaos and Baltar sort of, jumps into like PR mode, right? Like immediately giving like his uh, interview as to, you know, what's going to happen next and, and all of this. Um, 
yeah, I was sure there would be an acquittal, but it was, the trial was a total pantomime of like, right. okay, you were sure of both of those things at the same time? Like, that doesn't seem right to make sense. But yeah, he's spinning it in a way that makes him look good and everybody else look like an idiot. Yeah. And of course, I mean, and obviously, again, like we, we've seen him, he, he wasn't always sure there would be an acquittal. Like, no. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, but so, yeah, so, you know, sort of the other end of the book ends, the other half of the book. End, I don't. Okay. So uh, you get Rosalind and Adama sort of talking again and, you know, interesting, of course, that Rosalind just sort of assumes Adama's vote. Um, and it takes her sort of a moment to realize like, oh, wait, you voted against Mm-hmm. Or you voted to acquit. And um Yeah, it is interesting that Adama's mind is changed by Lee's speech and Rosalind's isn't. Yeah. I mean some of the just generally speaking, some of the ways that and I think we talked a little bit about this before some of the ways that like Rosalind and Adama in particular act with regard to like it seems like maybe they shift back and forth in some of their uh positions a little more readily than you might expect mm. real life people to do it in some time and sure. and like it feel I don't I mean some of that I think is just to like you you know, so that you can have some of that tension between like different mm-hmm. characters and shake it up a little bit. But but I do get the sense that there's maybe a little more shift in their characters even than like is mm-hmm. wholly believable at times. Mm-hmm. Um to me anyway. So I don't know. I mean So who doesn't feel true to you so, so at the end? So this this would be just out of curiosity. Like, like your your comment on about Rosalind, like I agree with because like it does seem odd that she's not convinced what mm-hmm. Adama is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could chalk it up maybe to it's his son, and so mm-hmm. you know, there's that. But also, like Adama seems to hate his own father, so. Like, well, and, this and seems to be, like, yeah. Lee channeling Joseph Adama, right? Like, it, I mean, that's kind of what, right. what Romo says, in a way, right? Like, that, like, right. you know, I don't know. In some ways, that's what feels weird to me, because um, Adama and Lee have been the ones with conflict. And it's Lee and Rosalind who've often been more allies and seen eye to eye. So it's kind of, it's the reversal of that, right. that Lee gives well, a speech and, and Adama is, um, and which so, I don't, I don't totally disagree with you. I think, I think I could make an argument of why it kind of makes sense, but I also think there's truth in what you're saying of, and I'm not even just bit, talking it, about yeah. this particular instance. I, I think throughout right. the series, there are, there right. are times where, Adama and or Rosalind seem to take positions that aren't wholly consistent with mm. the rest yeah. of what we see of their characters in the show. So, I mean, sure. You know, I'm I'm sure. hard pressed to pinpoint any other examples at this time, but it just 
that that struck me that has struck me anytime I've watched mm-hmm. the show not just even in the rewatch sure and I think we can keep an eye out for that um yeah. in the future um yeah and I don't necessarily I mean I think one thing with Rosalind that maybe I would add and maybe point out to kind of keep in mind for the future too is like to what extent her animosity, her personal animosity with Baltar is at play, that it's not, it's not consistent with what she normally would argue. Um, And that's something that realistic or not from a character point of view, I feel like definitely becomes even stronger as the series goes on is just the kind of visceral hatred between Rosalind and Baltar. Um, And I don't necessarily I'm not arguing that it's always all that well written or reasoned, but I feel like that's what they're kind of yeah. well, trying so to like, play with there. Like even, even the fact that um, unless there's something I'm forgetting, like even the fact that uh, she never even seems to consider like, Oh, I gave this blanket pardon. And right. like, but why is Baltar, why does Baltar not fall under that? Or, the, or like, like the prosecutor should have brought that up to her. And mm-hmm. then like, it could have been a discussion and like, we could have seen like, why, mm-hmm. like if you have a blanket pardon from the president, unless she included in there, except for Baltar, but like, we're never right. told that that provision is included. Like, like it seems to me like, that would be a pretty serious hole, like loophole in the case that either the president or the prosecutor should have like noticed beforehand. Maybe they did, but if they did, it's never acknowledged like openly on the show, like in the show. It's not like strategized right. about, it's like, well, what if the defense says, hey, how come this blanket pardon doesn't apply to Baltar? Like, what are we going to say to that? Like, right. Like, I just don't see... I don't see how that I don't I don't see how you can't even like consider that and why like Rosalind like principled generally principled Rosalind wouldn't mm-hmm. say I don't like it but like I did do this thing maybe I did it without thinking but it does apply mm-hmm. to everyone so let's try to figure out a different way to go about it like I don't know Well and I I think some of that and I maybe they don't uh frame this well enough and it's only like things that occur to you refrigerator logic like after you've seen the episode like five times or something but like the way that i the impression i get with the scenes of tori arguing with the prosecutor are that rosalind wants the strategy to be not just about what are baltar's crimes on new caprica but his crimes against humanity in the original genocide like, so the fact that she sure. wants him charged with genocide, like, I almost wonder if, like, is, and maybe we should see more of the strategizing, but is the strategy supposed to be, this isn't just about his actions on New Caprica, but it's about the original attacks on the colonies and the part that he played. And it's the prosecutor who says, I don't want to go there. We're sticking with what I can prove. We're not testifying to Rosalind's dream visions while she's dying and the prosecutor kind of vetoes that as a line of inquiry and so I feel like Rosalind's hatred is not just 
he was a crappy president on New Caprica and sold us to the Cylons, but it's about, I know I saw him right. with the six back then and nothing anybody tells me is going to convince me otherwise that he's been in collusion with the enemy from day one. Sure. And this is, he's not just weak and incompetent and cowardly. He's actively conspiring. And so that's why he doesn't count under the blanket pardon of people who made bad choices. Yeah. Under the circuit. I feel like that's what I wish they would articulate. Like, right. The pieces are all there. They just don't ever have anybody say that all like I just said it. And maybe there's a scene missing of like, we should have had the prosecutor and Roslyn have like a strategy session where they say this is what it is. Sure. I mean, and so some of it is the vagueness about how far the, you know, forgiveness extends. Right. But... So looking at sure. like what yeah. Lee says on the stand, it certainly seems to go back to before New Caprica, though. Cause right, because he's naming like the Olympic carrier and and yeah. and, and the Pegasus right. stuff right. that happened before New Caprica. Right. And, uh, you know, his act of mutiny and all that. So like mm -hmm. like there are things that he mentions that are before New Caprica. So mm -hmm. if that's all been forgiven then how far back does that forgiveness extend? Sure. Like, like we don't, like maybe there's some ambiguity there. I mean, but this is also, so again, like the prosecutor strategizing with Tori should know that, like should know like mm -hmm. why, why are we able to charge Baltar with this thing if there's this blanket forgiveness, especially right. given that's like, like that just seems like the obvious defense thing to go after, right? Like, and that's ultimately mm -hmm. what basically convinces the judges, or at least three of them, mm -hmm. in the end. Any is is that blanket forgiveness? So, like, it just seems like a major like legal stratagem piece that never gets discussed as part of that strategy. If if the if the prosecutor is saying we can't go that far back because we can't prove anything then like mm -hmm. the prosecutor should also be saying like on the other hand the president gave a blanket pardon so we might not even be able to get him on that either mm. you know as a matter of law if if that blanket part like like without explaining why that blanket pardon shouldn't apply to you him. know apply to him like that right. just seems like a pretty major mm -hmm. thing but sure. I, you know, again, like this, it always comes back to that we don't really know enough about colonial law and like mm -hmm. constitution and that kind of. It's like again, like they sort of seem like they're similar to American, you know, mm -hmm. constitutions and stuff, but also kind of not. Like there's maybe other like more parliamentary aspects and and this and that. So it's like like you're never quite sure. Like is this something that where it's just like they can wave it away because it's like, oh, well, it's not, that's not really how, you know, it happens mm -hmm. in the colonial system. So we're just going to sort of ignore it and, right. you know, move on. Um, like, right. again, with well, the whole and, tribunal, like, yeah. is it a tribunal? Is it a military tribunal? Is it a civilian tribunal? Is it a court martial? Like, 
it's kind of a little of each, but you're not really sure which. And mm -hmm. yeah, like what, well, what and, are and the rules goes, that they're, you know, going under? And I, you can call this the get out of jail free card, but I think it goes to Lee's point about we're not a civilization. We're a gang on the run and how, I mean, you could accuse the writers of this, but I think he's accusing the characters too of saying, you're acting like we know what we're doing and we don't. <laughs> like, you're acting like sure. we have rules and we don't. We cherry pick the ones that are convenient for us in the moment that give us the outcome that we're looking for. But do we ever really follow them with any consistency? And I think maybe there's a metafictional aspect to it, but it's Lee saying, like, what the heck is going on in this show? Of <laughs> Like... You know, and kind of looking at this, you know, this courtroom and kind of calling it out for this sort of joke that it is. Um, yeah. So, you know, whether were the writers self-aware of that? I'm not sure. Maybe a little bit, maybe not. But um, I think it kind of applies to the situation of, you know, making it up as they go. I mean, not to say making the story up, but making the rules of the world up in the moment for what suits them and not necessarily realizing the larger consequences of that or thinking everything out to its logical conclusion, I think is something you can accuse the powers that be of both in the narrative and outside of it. Um, um, okay. All right. So we really need to move on. Yes. Um, So, I mean, okay, so speaking of, uh, we, I don't think we actually included this in our, um, you know, sort of notes here, or our outline, but, um, you know, you talk about seeing Rosalind having, like, seen uh, Baltar and Six together. So there's the whole, you know, Rosalind has her first cancer treatment, and then, like... Mm has a vision with Athena and the six. Right. And it's like, she's almost kind of bonding with the six at this yeah, point sure. in time. So like, like there's that sure. aspect even of it too. Like yeah. as she's like pissed and like trying to get Baltar, you know, executed, <laughs> like she's also right. kind of at the same time, like realizing that the six wants to protect Hera. And, and That's at a least, really good point. at least there's a, commonality between them she maybe doesn't quite know but like like it's happened too much now that like you know she and athena and the six are like sharing dreams and that's mm -hmm. not normal so like something's going on here that she is sort of trying to figure out um and and yeah again sort of like bonding with her in a way so mm -hmm. uh yeah, I mean, it's just kind of funny. Given, the irony, yeah. Given that, uh, how how much she considers Baltar a traitor. Mm-hmm. Um, after the trial. So yeah, Baltar sort of assumes uh, Lee and Romo will help him out. And they they both kind of get angry or and or laugh in his face. Yeah. Um, and leave him alone and he's sort of shocked like well what am i supposed to do how am i supposed to live and it's kind of like you should have thought about that before buddy 
Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you sort yeah, of left. It's the it kind was, of thing that doesn't occur to you when you're in the midst of the trial, and then well, or or that yeah. like I mean, I think I think this is sort of consistent with Baltar in that like he just sort of assumes everyone else is on the same wavelength as him mm. or that he can like talk people into things. And mm-hmm. I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, he does keep sort of winning. So that mm-hmm. is kind of true. Um, and even this time, like, even as he's like walking through the Galactica and sort of, you know, getting the, the sort of high school, like shoulder bumps and like knocked about. Um, <laughs> the, the jocks are kind of push him yeah. into his locker and yeah. Um, and then the power goes out and he's sort of saved by these women who take him, you know, sort of cover him up and like spirit him away, you know, somewhere to, to be safe and protected. Right. Um, right. So he does always get rescued, but it's not always from angle that he expects it it kind of always surprises him and comes from a weird direction and right and like that he actively rejected right like i mean right yeah like the the woman who was uh, i forget her name you know who was part of the press who came to like have him bless her child and is now like saving him even though he sort of mocked her and refused to do what she wanted and all of that um and sent her away like now it's like oh she's helping him out uh well presumably i mean you know we know she does but like i guess technically you might not know that at this point in this show um so yeah so and of course so this happens in the blackout and oh hey there's a blackout um (laughs) uh which it's unclear what the cause is i think Mm -hmm. right and mm-hmm. so the question, part of the question is like, do they cause it, like, so that they can rescue Baltar? Is it mm-hmm. some sort of preemptive strike by the Cylons? And if so, like, how do they do it? That mm-hmm. seems to be, um, I forget. Someone seems to suggest maybe it's Ty that that's the case, right? Like that it's that like the blackout is like the Cylon part of the Cylon attack. But yeah. there's no, like, it's not clear that that's necessarily true. Sure. Um, yeah. It does seem to be fleet wide, so it's not just the Galactica. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, we don't necessarily know. Right. Right. Or is it? Or is it this nebula that they, they've jumped to? Right, right. There's some sort of natural interference. It could with... be an incidental thing, right? Yep. Um. Yeah. Although they don't jump to the nebula, do they? Doesn't yes. the blackout happen before or after the jump? No, I think it's I think it's after. I think they jump and then everything goes dark. So it's like the arrival at the nebula. Oh, okay. I coincides with this chaos. I guess I, I missed missed the timing of that because I thought it was while they were preparing to jump. That the blackout occurs, but maybe I'm I I could be wrong. I may have my attention. Yeah, I'm pretty that. sure that they do jump. So it's like okay, it's 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 a yeah they're they're happening. So that's so one jump, possible explanation. Yeah, they jump. They there's a blackout, and then the Cylons appear. Yeah, 
Gotcha. Yep. And and yeah, and then because they've powered down, it's going to take them a while to be ready right. to jump again. And in the meantime, well, then there's already like heading their direction. There's already like a account like you. There's already a reset that you have that has to be done anyway. Right. You know, before you can, you can't like immediately jump again. You have to, there's some right. kind of process that like we've talked about before. And mm-hmm. that coupled with the blackout, right? Like means they're defenseless and, and so yeah. they send out the vipers. Right. Um, right. Which I guess we don't, which I kind of hadn't really ever thought about before, but we don't see an actual battle. It's, it ends with the Cylons are on the way and the vipers are going out to meet them but like nothing is really engaged yet it's sort of in that moment before the battle breaks out is sort of where it ends right um right so uh with the vipers lee sort of just commandeers a, a viper and goes out with them and no one seems to know like oh who's in number three like speaking of throwing out like the rules and the system of like yeah well yeah so i mean right this is maybe against the whole what we were saying earlier about lee being lawful good no but But, i i I mean um, it it fits in your thing of he's doing the right thing regardless of what like yeah you know yeah it's going to be the right it like if the ship needs defending i'll defend it you know, yeah. regardless of the circumstances. I don't think you can, like, shift him that far towards the chaotic. You know, right. just because, like, this one time he, like, jumps in a viper when technically he's resigned. Right. Um, like, you, like, there's almost even, like, like, when, when he calls in and there's, you know, he, like, identifies himself, like, this is Apollo in Viper 3 or whatever. Like, like there's almost tacit approval like mm-hmm. you know maybe it's like that thing of like it fits within because like nobody objects <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like so like technically like maybe technically he's breaking a rule but like it's sort of like processed as an exception and therefore it's okay uh right you know within the bounds of of the right military right. Well, law it, or whatever it, it, that we're blacked out and the silence are attacking. Is anyone going to complain that Captain Apollo jumped in a Viper and is helping? Like, right, right. you know, is it the wrong thing if everybody agrees that it was a good idea? So, yeah. Um, um, so anyway, so right. He goes out and of course there's a, a maverick, uh, rogue vehicle, uh, mm-hmm. you know, going about and and of course it turns out to be starbuck mm-hmm. um <clears throat> who is back from the dead apparently or leaves seeing things mm-hmm. i don't know which is it or we'll have to wait know, till next season to find out third possibility or slight coda to one of those possibilities we learn um some things about some new cylons and it's like sure. there there is there is an open spot, you know? So that's right. it throwing, you know, I mean obviously people have seen this before, but <laughs> I think it, when you're watching it for the first time, right, there's when this... you're getting a reveal of of the final five and there's a empty Right, there we've seen slot, four. 
you and have to that's i feel like one of the things you're prompted to speculate is um and, and by this that's time, a possibility by this time of course the music is blaring yeah so we don't know who's hearing it mm. beyond those four um but bef before we get to the music we should talk about the what i call the penultimate four um <laughs> who are Tyrrell, Ty, Sam, and Tori. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I mean, I don't know that we need to go through like all of their little pieces. I mean, we get uh, like, like we've gotten a little bit of hint until now. I don't know that like until sort of the end of the episode and you know, the song, or at least you start hearing them say like lyrics, you mm -hmm. know, in their dialogue, right. like even, right. I think we might've gotten one or two references last time that could have just sort of been passed off as like, oh, that's kind of a weird phrasing. I wonder if that's a reference to something, but like. Right, the kind of like, all right, all right, no reason to get excited. Those kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. moments. It's like, you could totally blow past that and not yeah. catch it because it's done um, more naturally. And, and in this episode, even like, like you get that line, but yeah, like it's very, all right, no, no reason to get excited. And, um, but yeah, then you get like Ty, like there's, there's too much confusion. There's, there must be some yeah. kind of way out of here. And, and it's yeah. like, all right, like this is That's a familiar. little too yeah. like coincidental. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you get them all like, you know, shot one shot to the next of like them right. each individually saying a line and, and going, so you know, I mean, by the time it sort of starts up, other than that, it's a completely different arrangement. Like you, you kind of know mm -hmm. what the song is and like have identified who's hearing it and, and all of this. Um, mm -hmm. But really, I mean, so the, the, the moment though is, uh, well, yeah. So like when they all kind of come into the room, right. And it, you have like, Tyrrell and Sam and then like Tori comes in and then like Ty and like like that's like the last row I was like what no like this yeah yeah like that it's Ty that you go whoa wait a minute like Ty of all people is right. the most like flawed worst aspects of humanity kind of character and it's like the one that you really don't expect to yeah. it never occurred to you um, um you so know. Um, there's sort of the, I mean, they're kind of similar, but like slightly different reactions, mm -hmm. um, or, or maybe more of like a range of reactions, I guess. So you get like, mm -hmm. like Tori is like, this isn't happening. Please tell me this isn't happening. Kind of like, you know, disbelief. Um, Tyrrell seems almost the most accepting. Like, yeah. like he's yeah. like, so, so that's it. Just after all this time, a switch goes off just like that and and, of says, course, and and where we have been from the start that he's right which i feel i say what you're gonna say and then i'll so this is in. this is a callback to boomer i yes. i think like very much so is yeah like he has to be thinking of like boomer and her memory problems and and the realization that she's a cylon mm -hmm. you know being similar to this like that she had no idea and like that's gotta be yeah what's going through his mind right then 
And and I think as a consequence of his closeness to Boomer, I think he's the only one of these four that we've seen ever consider that he might even be a Cylon. That like we've seen him sure. have his suicidal dreams where, you know, Cavill said like, you have the secret desire to kill yourself because you're worried you're a Cylon just like Boomer. So the fact that like, he seems the most accepting is I think that like, he's actually considered this possibility, whereas maybe the others mm. hadn't. Um, and so, yeah, when he kind of goes, all right, a switch goes off just like that. And we're Cylons and we have been from the start. Like, he's kind of like, okay, I'm like mildly like surprised, but not shocked, you know, like it was certainly a thing that he had thought about before. Um, Whereas, like, Sam looks at his history of resistance against Cylons in every situation. He's been the leader of a resistance against Cylons and kind of goes, well, how can that possibly make any sense if this is what I am? Sure. Like, so, you know, and Ty, obviously, I think, you know. Yeah, you're right. Ty and Sam have the most sort of, explosive reactions mm-hmm. <laughs> um and yeah like like it's it's that thing of right they don't they can't really believe it their their history of fighting and killing and whatever cylons is obviously well attested and like you know very much um well and can I point out, all four of these people were on the resistance in New Caprica, and three of them were part of the circle. <laughs> so they're tossing Cylon collaborators out the airlock. So they were all like very prominent members of like anti Cylon, like, right. you know, uh, movements and active participants in that. Um, so. You know, Ty sort of, uh, right, so you get Tyrrell saying, like, again, like, oh, we've been, we're Cylons, and we have been from the start. And then Ty is like, you know what, it doesn't matter. I'm Saul Ty, I'm officer in the Colonial Fleet, whatever else, that's who I am. Like, even even if I am a Cylon, like, I'm still who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they all kind of go back to do their jobs, which is what he says, right? Like, you know, we do our jobs and, you know, uh, so he and Tori go to the CIC where Adama and Rosalind are. Um, Tyrrell and Sam go back to the hangar deck and Mm -hmm. um, are both sort of maybe a little more bemused by things, but like, um, I, you know, I, I like the sort of parallel between Ty and Tori of mm. like, you know, Ty saying, good to be here. You can count on me. And Adama saying, I've never doubted it. And then Tori sort of saying the same thing. I'm here if you need me, Madam president. And like, they they kind of look at each other after that. And so one of the, we don't get a comment between them, obviously. Um, but 
one of the things I, I wonder like if they're thinking about is like that realization of like, wait a minute, like as Cylons, like the Cylons have successfully, if, if we are in fact Cylons, mm-hmm. the Cylons, I, uh, i.e. us, have successfully infiltrated the colonial system of government and military to basically the highest levels, mm-hmm. right? Like, or at least access to the highest levels. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Billy was killed and Tori took over for him. Mm-hmm. Like, Sai or Sai Tai has been at Adama's side for years. And, you know, that's where yeah. he is. So it's just like, it's that thing of, like, we don't get that. And, like, I don't even know if that even comes up later, to be honest. I don't mm-hmm. remember if, if that is ever explicitly sort of acknowledged. But that's sort of, to me, like, this last time watching it is just like, mm. like, the, that's the what I thought. The chilling aspect of, like, of it, yeah. Like, I wonder if they're, like, realizing right then, like, how what the implications are of them being a Cylon given given who they're like standing next to right now in the middle of like the CIC. (laughs) Right. Well, and so two things with that, like, so two in CIC, two go to the hangar deck and you have one in each of the main groups. So you've got someone in like who works with the dominant CIC. You've got someone on colonial one with Roslyn You've got the chief of the hangar deck and you've got a Viper pilot. So it's like, and I feel like that has to be deliberate. Like part of the consideration of the characters was choosing ones that like have a good amount of diversity among the group of like they could. And maybe from a silent point of view, like, yeah, like potentially this is a way to infiltrate every aspect of, of Galactica. Um, But then with the look between Ty and Tori, I also think, thinking about Boomer too, when they say, like, you can count on me, I wonder if also part of the look is saying, is that true? <laughs> you know, like, can he count on us? Do sure. we actually know? Like, Boomer straight up, like, shot Adama and with no, I mean, maybe she had misgivings, she had hints, but she didn't necessarily have full control of herself. So part of it, I feel, is kind of them saying, like, we're saying you can count on me, but also kind of looking at each other, like, not entirely sure if that is a true statement. Um, Yeah. But what are they going to do? They're not going to, or they don't, come out and just say it. They have to just carry on with this knowledge, at least for the time being. So, yeah. But that is a kind of chilling aspect of it when you do kind of realize like, oh yeah, they're at the highest levels and they're in every area, you know? So it's the suggestion that the Cylons are everywhere again. Um, yeah. It's kind of like bringing, I've never thought of this before, but it's kind of like bringing it back to season one where you have this sense of the Cylons could be anywhere. We just don't know who they are. And I feel like the more right. silence you meet, that kind of goes away a bit. And this kind of brings it back, but in a different way of saying, now you know they're everywhere, but you know who they are. Right. And so the question is, what are they going to do? So you know they've infiltrated, and you just don't know 
what results will come from that. Yeah. Um, and how many of them know that there are that there's a final five? Like, because like Baltar learns that. Right. But do any of these characters but, know that? I mean, yeah. I would assume Ty does. I doubt any Maybe? of the others do. I, I don't mean, know. I mean, and I don't remember to be honest. At this point, I'm not sure who knows. Through interrogation, uh, uh, Roslyn, right. Roslyn, and Adama know. That's right. Is Ty right. present for that? Like the uh, whole waterboarding or whatever. He he might be. So maybe Ty knows has heard something about the final five. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So like. I guess the question being, like, they don't even necessarily know, except for maybe Ty, like, how many more there could be. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's not just the aspect of, like, anyone could be a Cylon, but, like, like if we didn't even know that the four of us were Cylons. Like, okay, nobody right. shows up in there, but are there others on other ships, mm -hmm. you know, hearing the same music at the same time, doing right. the same thing? Um so, I mean, there's that aspect, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the okay. music. Yes. We should talk about this. So I know you had some, like, production notes or, or comments about the music itself. So I, I don't know if you want to kind of talk through some of that. And then yeah, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go quick because um, I have a blog post of that Bear McCreary, the composer, wrote, which I can link to in the show notes if people want to read it. Um, but he kind of talks about the um, from a production point of view and, and what he was thinking. And um, uh, so, you know, new arrangement that he wrote, they didn't want to uh, reference the Dylan or the Hendrix versions too heavily other than the lyrics and the melody and the basic shape of the song but they wanted it to be to sound like it was a completely new arrangement by some other you know songwriter um so so he wrote new arrangements for that and new riffs and everything and it's actually his brother Brendan McCreary doing the vocals for what that's worth um and, you know, and then added in things like the, the score is so heavily international in the, in the instruments that he uses. So added in all of those Indian and Asian and African instruments that are kind of, um, uh, have become, I guess, the tropes of what the BSG soundtrack sounds like, um, and then also took ideas from wanting it to be just like the loudest musical cue that they'd done and wanting it to get just more and more big and overwhelming. So taking inspiration from Guns N' Roses and Rage Against the Machine and bands like that, where it's a very kind of rock, almost heavy metal sounding, but not quite kind of sound. So those were some of the things that he was trying to do to make it a unique moment. Um, and then just from my point of view, I was trying to remember to say this because I said it before we started recording. Um, I recently wrote a blog post about uh, things in life that have given me wonder after going to the latest Mythmoot conference. 
both in life and in art. And I was trying to think of things of, oh, you know, a moment from each of my favorite things. And I don't feel like BSG does wonder a ton. I think most of the time it's pretty gritty and dark and about flawed people and tough choices and all that. But I feel like every once in a while it breaks into the realm of wonder and there's something bigger going on at a level you don't quite understand. Um, and the first one that came to mind was the opera house in season one where they, Baltar has that vision and the music swells to be this big orchestral thing. Um, but then I kind of was thinking about it and realized every moment I can think of that strays into the realm of wonder utilizes the music that way, where the music becomes essential, but also kind of breaks the fourth wall and becomes important to the characters as well as to the audience that's listening to it. And this is, there's one or two more I can think of and some coming up in the next season, but um, this is the other big one I think of. Obviously, this is central for the characters, but also the fact that you at home are hearing the song that you know uh, is really important. And I think it gives you that wondrous sense of, as you said, looking at the mashed potatoes, trying to figure out what does it mean, that it, it has some significance that you can't quite grasp. Mm -hmm. um, and it might have scary or disorienting aspects, but it's also kind of exciting and thrilling at the same time. Um, sure. So, yeah, I think that's one of the, and like you said, one of the most memorable and iconic moments of the whole series. So it definitely achieves that, I think. Um, so, yeah, there are a few things uh, sort of have different things going around in my mind. So one thing is just even with the, um, with the music and stuff, um, the whole Ionian Nebula comes becomes interesting because mm. uh, the Ionian scale is is another name for the major scale in mm. music. So, see, this is why you need music people to explain these little references. Yeah, and I don't. Stuff. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the song well enough, and and particularly Barry Curie's, uh, you know, version uh, to know whether it's in that mode or even if that's something they're thinking. But of course, you know. Um, Ionian is also a reference to ancient Greece, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, 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 was it a peninsula or or something like like it's a it's a geographic feature of some kind mm -hmm. in ancient Greece. I I want to say peninsula or something like that, but like, um, which I believe is kind of like tied to the music somehow as well. Like there's different scales that are supposedly tied to like different areas of Greece and all of that. Sure, anyway. Sure. So like there's, there's like that. Right. So there's the Greco Roman well. connection, but it also has a musical aspect. Right. Um, oh, actually apparently, apparently Ionia was part is part of what's now present day Turkey, but had different, uh, you know, may have like been overrun or something by the Greeks at some point. Sure, you know, like, Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so sorry that that just is sort of all occurring to me now. So like, I'm I don't again know enough about like the music itself, like 
to know if it's in the Ionian scale or, or whatever, mm. but, and given like the sort of more international flavor, the, the world music flavor or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. of the song, like maybe it's not even, maybe that's just incidental anyway. Um, one of the things I did find interesting was, um, and we can link to it in our show notes, um, I did stumble across um, a YouTube video um, by someone named Nerdwriter, <laughs> um, who seems, you know, appropriate seems legit. to, to uh, <laughs> what we do. Um, talking about the song All Along the Watchtower, um, the original Bob Dylan version, um, and not in not tied to BSG at all, but just talking about um, and this is sort of in reference to, you know, his, Dylan's recent um, Nobel uh, Prize winning uh, stature laureateness. I don't know what the right word is there. But, um, you know, just kind of talking about um, this song as, you know, obviously being really iconic, having a lot of different versions and, and kind of um, talking through the importance of it. And what struck me um, was the focus that he gives on the repetitiveness and the circularity of it, um, which of course, thinking back to the mantra of this has all happened before, it'll all happen again. Um, mm. So, and this, so this is uh, sort of circular and repetitive on a couple of different uh, levels. One, just um, the chords that are used. Like it, it's literally the same three chords, just kind of goes back and forth between them. So it's, it, there isn't really a distinction between like verse and chorus and bridge and like mm -hmm. that, that a lot of other songs have. It's just straight up. There's these like three chords, you go back and forth and, and it kind of moves up and down with them, um, you know, ebbing and flowing sort of in a way. Um, he also talks about a, a sort of circularity in the lyrics where you have, um, you know, this conversation, so the, the song is a conversation, right, between a joker and a thief, and you, you get sort of, um, you know, the opening with the joker, you know, saying, oh, there's got to be some kind of way out of here, and blah, 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 and then the thief saying, ah, none of this really matters, we've, we've been here before, and um, all of that, and then yeah, uh, what nerd writer says um, about the last bit is he goes, the final quatrain is a little bit jarring. It's almost as if it's misplaced in time. It's been suggested that the last lines are chronologically the first in the story. So this is the part where you have like the two writers approaching and it's like, mm -hmm. you don't know who the writer, is it the Joker and the thief? Is it, you know, someone else that they're watching, you know, kind of what's going on. Um, uh, so he says, it's been suggested that the last lines are chronologically the first in the story. And by doing this, Dylan gives the song a kind of endless circular feel. The story is always wrapping around to the start again, emphasizing just how futile the Joker's first comment of there must be some kind of way out of here. Because there isn't. Mm. It's it's just, it keeps going. Going, going. in a circle forever, yeah. Um, and then he says, and he talks a little bit about like Bob Dylan and sort of claims of people, you know, pe that people have put upon him as being a prophet and how he always sort of, you know, rejected that, you know, title or, or responsibility. And mm -hmm. um, so Nerdwriter says, you know, All Along the Watchtower delivers its prophecy of impending doom. Oh, and then he also talks a little bit about sort of the, both the rock and roll and the blues um, influences mm -hmm. historically on it. 
Um, and then kind of putting those two things together, is he says, all on the watchtower delivers its prophecy of impending doom onto a steady and unfaltering foundation, something that points backwards to both its roots in folk and to the black roots of rock and roll. And it was uh, Bob Dylan's great gift that he could take something that orients itself to the past and push himself and his music forward. It's the music that makes All Along the Watchtower a cryptic prophecy that we can't escape, something that teases you in and always at the end begins. So just kind of that, again, that circularity in the in the actual, you know, music as a whole, but like also in the sort of the roots, taking the roots and, and making something new out of it, but then, you know, still kind of being rooted to the past in that same way that we've seen in BSG again, you know, even just like, the fact that BSG yeah. is a science fiction story, but has all of this sort of Greco-Roman mythology and and historical, but yet also prophetic, you know, aspect to it. So I don't know. I mean, you can read a lot into that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, again, like he wasn't talking about BSG in any of this. And I mean, it's, you know, it's textual analysis as it is, which is always sort of subjective and whatever, but I just found Mm -hmm. like, I thought it was very interesting given sort of the themes of the show and, and um, why like, and not even saying that necessarily whoever picked this song, (laughs) you know, to be in this episode or part of the show, like even had any of these thoughts when they were doing it. But mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting that you can have all of these sort of similarities to pop out and and give a little bit different right. level of meaning uh, to it all. Right. And I don't know if I, I don't think I mentioned that, like, whatever their thought process, it definitely w- was the writers, or if not Ron Moore, then maybe all of them together that chose it. It wasn't like they said to bear mccreary okay we want a familiar rock song and you pick something like they said this is what you're gonna do is you're gonna make an arrangement of this particular song so i'd imagine it was chosen for some reason and yeah i mean i think those themes of circularity and muddled past and present and future seem like a good a plausible sort of reading of that even the way that like the lyrics in the song are not clear as to the setting. Like there's references to like businessmen drink my wine, plowmen dig my earth. It's like, those sound like they're from two different time periods. Like, like, and there's references to like castles and princes. And so it almost sounds kind of like medieval, but then you have this modern rock aspect to it at the same time. Sure. Um, So there's a whole, confusion i guess about what is the song even about when does it take place in what order yeah too much yes everything is confused um yeah and your reference to you know every this has all happened before this will all happen again and baltar's line about the psych somebody's got to stop the cycle eventually Mm. of the of the the cyclical revenge and violence um I think goes along like those are like if not the biggest at least one of the biggest themes in the show so it seems like that's a good connection to make yeah so yeah 
all of that. Okay. Um, I don't have anything more about the song um, itself. I no. mean, it's, it's, you know, playing over the action. Um, I mean, it's, it's well done. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I particularly like the arrangement, but mm -hmm. um, definitely given that they sort like the lines, the, you know, the music that they're trying to hear and play, like they definitely did a good job of making it. So you can't like pick out what it is before they kind of reveal, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Um, right. Right. Well, and I think he said too, in his blog post, like the riff that they hear that little, like do, 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 like that's something he added in as part of his. So it wasn't necessarily right. like picking out something that, Oh, you're going to recognize that right away. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, Hey, when the two most famous versions of this song are done by Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix, it's a little hard to, sure. you know, compete with that. But at the other, uh, so as a song to listen to, it, it's not the greatest arrangement of that song, which, you know, would be hard to do. Um, but I think it works well in the show, like the way it, the, the way that it, is revealed and the way that it builds and the way that you're understanding what's going on in chunks until they make their decision to go do their jobs. And then you kind of get the, the song plays in earnest with the full lyrics and everything I think works really well. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Okay. Well, moving on <laughs> um, from a very iconic BSG episode to a Buffy episode, which I don't know whether it's iconic or not, because I don't know about the popular um, conception of that. You made a reference before we watched last week to how this is one of the creepiest episode so i take for, i'm guessing from that that this is an iconic monster that has disturbed more than a few people yeah um, i i think i don't i mean we've talked about a lot of like the episodes of like favorite episodes and stuff mm -hmm. um and i don't know that this is necessarily one of those like favorite episode type things but I, I definitely think like when you when you get to like iconic monsters in the show, mm -hmm. Narl definitely is up there. Um, yeah. I mean, certainly I think it's a memorable episode. Um, yeah. Uh, I can't remember if I mentioned this on the podcast or afterwards, but it's Jane Espenson, um, who obviously, um, as our patron saint, always. Uh, deserves praise. always delivers yeah um you know i mean i don't know where like the episode itself would rank per se like on various lists i don't know that i've seen it really in even like top 10 or top 25 as an episode but i do think definitely uh gnarl uh is is one of the top like, yeah. like listed up there with like the gentleman and, you know, yeah. some of the other 
um, at least monster of the week ones, you know, maybe alongside a few of the big bads here and there kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so a minor, minor production note then worth noting that the actor, uh, Camden toy, uh, who plays Naro, um, also played one of the gentlemen. (laughs) Um, and we will see him again. I mean, it's always hard to tell, you know, when they're in like all the prosthetics and makeup and everything. Although I even think here, you, when you do see Naro's face, uh, you can sort of see a gentlemanly-esque, uh, aspect to it. Um, yeah, so uh, we will actually see him again in another Buffy episode and again in an Angel episode. <laughs> so um, oh, okay. he's, he's, he's one of those who, um, you know, like Luke and the Judge or, you know, like whatever, like, you know, uh-huh. maybe you wouldn't recognize per se. So I can point out when we do see him again, but, um, you know, right. ha- has that sort of... Uh, claim to fame of being in, you know, sort of multiple uh, roles here. Um, so, yeah. And and I yeah. think he does a good job. Like, you know, yeah. like, I think, although it's not Hush where you're not hearing anything, um, the the acting and, and the vocals of Narl are just, to me, extremely <laughs> creepy and like, well, and it, it manages to um, be scary when you don't see him, and then even scarier when you do. You know, like, which is, I feel like, hard to pull off. Like, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes those things are, the, the unseen is the most terrifying aspect, so when it's just his voice and the shadows and the little pitter patter of his feet along the cave floor is, and your imagination's running wild. That's super creepy. Um, but then when you do see him, the makeup is good, but like, like you said, the acting, like his physicality is so good of, it's very golem like his kind of skinny subterranean kind of frog like, the way he kind of sits and squats over Willow and then, and maybe this is all the best monsters are, they're scary like in the particulars, but also in the big ideas too. Is it, so it's not just the details of the way he looks and the way he sounds and the way he moves, but it's also the idea of what he does that he paralyzes you with these fingernails and eats you one skin strip at a time like oh that's terrible like while you're Um, still alive yeah while you're still alive and this is a slow process that takes hours and you are awake and presumably can feel something of this and yeah um so it works both on just the level of how he looks on the camera but also the notion of him is memorable. Like what he does as a monster is an iconic sort of thing. So I think, I feel like he works similarly to the gentleman that way. Um, sure. that th- they have a very distinct appearance, but also it's very easy to remember 
they have a very simple and defined role as the demons that steal your voice. So, um, yeah. And I guess just in general, emaciated skinniness, there is a resemblance there of like kind of skeletal looking. Yeah. 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 So they got I mean, like obviously... a, super, a super thin and, you know, athletic guy to do these parts. Right. So, all right. Well, we totally jumped ahead to Naro, but we'll come back to him. Um, well, it was more about the actor, but yeah, like, yeah. Sure. Um, I guess let's start with the scenario of what the episode is about, which is Willow's homecoming, which we teased at the end of the previous episode, uh, that she was getting on the plane and was reluctant and specifically that she didn't necessarily feel ready. And we kind of find out in this episode technically isn't ready and that she has a specific training and rehab program that she's been going through that she hasn't finished. That Giles is sure. deemed, uh, you know, the, the like situation. Yeah. The situation is dire enough that she's checking out early. Um, and as Dawn says, uh, she didn't finish not being evil. <laughs> like, right. this, like uh, that seems like a course you might want to see through to completion. Um, it's not like getting an incomplete on, you know, your math exam um this is actually important for all of their lives and their safety so i guess where the episode starts nobody's really it's not exactly a welcome home party let's put it that way um you have xander with his white sign and yellow crayon so making an effort in the right place, even if it doesn't really work because you can't see it. Sure. Um, but nobody's really that excited, I guess. They're all more nervous than anything else to have her back, um, including Willow. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, not to jump ahead too much to what we find out, but starting out in a place of uncertainty is kind of where everything it's the thing that starts the plot moving. And I guess that's the, the metaphor is that wishing that she were somewhere else and wasn't actually going to have to face up to this. Um, so she gets off the plane and there's nobody there. And Buffy and the others are at the airport and she doesn't get off the plane. So you start to, it's pretty clever, I think, the way they do it of, it's like really over a couple of scenes that you build up the awareness of what's even going on, that you see a scene twice and kind of have to put the clues together of, you know, the little boy did the thing and that you recognize it from the first time that lets you know, oh, this is happening at the same time. Or when they get to the house and, uh, the door slams from downstairs 
And the first time you sort of write it off as the sound of the wind or Willow hearing something. And then you see it again and you realize it's Buffy closing the door. So kind of this gradual reveal of not why this is happening, but what exactly is happening. So, yeah, I don't know anything to... I mean, expand on that about, like, the way they go about it. I'm not sure if there's... No, I mean, I think... I mean, that kind of goes throughout the episode that, in fact, it was hard to figure out how to talk about this episode because what order do you put things in? Everything sort of happens twice or or they happen in parallel with each other. So it's hard to know. I mean, it's it's hard to talk about, but it had to be a pain to write because structuring it had to be tricky. I'd imagine from yeah. a writing point of view of when do you find out which thing and in what order in order for it to make sense that so that it's followable to right. the audience, but that there's still some mystery to it of you have to sort of figure it out as you go along. Well, yeah. And I almost wonder like if it had, if like it was written as like just the story of like, here's where everyone is like as you're going through it. And then it's like, okay, now we just have to split this up into like, these are the scenes with Xander mm-hmm. and, you know, Buffy and Dawn. And these are the scenes with Willow, but like kind of side by side in like draft form of like, right. Cause you have like, you have, I mean, the thing that's sort of impressive is like all of those beats of, and I know like some, a lot of this can be added in like post with like sound effects and stuff of mm-hmm. like the door closing or like Willow mm-hmm. drop something or whatever. Right. Like, and Buffy, cause like, like there's right, like the thing that upstairs, like Willow yeah. hears and then goes down and there's no one there. And then like, right. there's the vice versa of like, but like, I mean the, the, not to jump ahead, but I'm gonna, um, the, you know, the scene with Spike, the yeah. scenes with Spike is like the big, because like the complex dialogue between them, you know, there. And also like, because Spike's crazy. <laughs> so like, right. y- you know, writing it in such a way as like almost everything you realize by the end of like both scenes that like pretty much everything he says actually isn't that crazy once you realize he can see everyone but like there is that sense of like you still have to like make it sound weird and crazy enough that like it's believable to the characters that they're that he's just sort of talking gibberish and mm-hmm. not really understanding what's going on. Um, yeah, it um, took me a second to remember what I was trying to think of, but I think it reminds me in some ways of the the Easter egg scenes in Blink, of where you are seeing the same bits of dialogue multiple times, but each time you see it, it does double duty as to who the characters are talking to and what they're saying and the significance of it. So the more you learn about the situation, then when you hear the dialogue again, suddenly it has this whole new meaning and, sure. and lets you know in a way that it doesn't totally tip you off the first time, but uh, you can follow the, the thread as it's sort of being unwound and everything. 
So yeah, you can totally write off Spike's mutterings to the air as the way he's been acting for the past couple of episodes. Um, and then like towards the end of it, at least I got like the, the, the sneaking suspicion of, oh, there's somebody else that he can see. And then you, when you see it again, you get to hear the whole scene again, but from the other point of view. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, that's kind of the best part of it, like the or the mm -hmm. the most well done part of it, I should say. Um, sure. I don't even know if that's right how to say it, but anyway. So like, um, yeah, I think it. I mean structurally very complex and and had to have been very hard to write um i would imagine um and I, I like i almost feel like if i were to approach it and not saying i could do even halfway as good of a job but um i think that's how i would have to do it, it would be to just like have that mm -hmm. to like basically write the parts like simultaneously of like willow's here and buffy and xander and don are here and Mm -hmm. kind of point by point you know go through each one and then separate them out into like discrete scenes to be shot or whatever you know in different right ways. right just cut those cut half of it out and do the other side of it um yeah no it is it is pretty well done i think um so Anything else about their reactions to Willow? I mean, I kind of wondered in the first couple episodes what their attitude towards her would be just because we didn't see them talking about her a whole lot. Um, sure. Like, there was this kind of assumption that, well, it's three months later, it's after the summer is over, so maybe they've said what needed to be said and they weren't really thinking about, not that they weren't thinking about her at all, but they had sort of got back into their daily lives and they weren't discussing, you know, what Willow was up to every day. So it kind of leaves you curious as to, is she even going to be welcome at all? Um, mm. Which Giles kind of suggests, like, maybe you won't be. Um, so, yeah. yeah, so here we see that she mostly is. There's definite tension, though. And Buffy's kind of, I guess, in the same position as me of saying, <clears throat> you know, what do you even say? Um, not that she doesn't want to say the right thing and make it be okay, but how do you even go about that? Where do you even start after Willow's not just killed somebody, but almost destroyed the world and gone totally dark and then come back from that. Um, yeah. You know, and Xander being, I guess, a little bit more, uh, if not, not necessarily more forgiving than Buffy, but maybe more proactive in trying to make it be okay, trying to make it work and make her feel welcome and reach out to her and everything. Um, and Dawn being the most nervous as the one who almost got killed by Dark Willow. So that's understandable. Sure. And yeah, like like Don's like, why why aren't we blaming Willow? Like everyone's blaming right. themselves 
except like no one's blaming her like right. she's the one who tried to like kill people and mm-hmm. or did kill people and and all. yeah no there's definitely uh she's sort of yeah the most ready to I don't know, throw Willow under the bus or, or whatever analogy you want to use, but yeah. Yeah, and pointing out, I think, in the effort to make it just be okay and not be tense anymore, the extent to which Buffy and Xander might be willing to overlook the things that Willow actually did of, you know, we can't bring that up. We can't accuse her of these things. We don't want to assume anything. And Dawn's the one kind of saying, well, why not? Because she actually did do some pretty bad things. So maybe she hasn't earned the benefit of the doubt. Mm. Um, So, all right. So she shows up and nobody can find each other. So everybody's feeling lonely and disappointed and everything. And so Willow goes to Anya for some help and guidance and somebody to talk to. Um... So you kind of get this uh, shift in the relationship. I mean, it starts out with Anya being, uh, you know, curt with Willow about what she did and the damage that was done to her ex-livelihood and that she's still cleaning up all of the mess from it Um, and kind of wanting to give her a hard time about it. And, but then it's not fun if Willow's contrite, like, a vengeance demon doesn't really get her kicks from somebody who's apologetic and sorry and says, you can say whatever you want to me. That kind of takes the fun out of it. Um, yes. Well, so. And there's, a, there's an extent to which she's being a little, she's not ex- going to exact revenge on, like, I never get the sense that she's really going to go all vengeance yeah, demon yeah, yeah. on Willow. But even, even that, like, like, I wasn't necessarily going there, but, like, we also learn later how Anya is sort of losing the taste for vengeance, too. So, like, like maybe it's not, like, I kind of feel like there might have sure. been a time where even if Willow was sorry, Anya would have taken delight in exacting vengeance. Mm-hmm. But, like, this is almost like an excuse. Oh, well, if you're going to be sorry about it, I don't even want to do it. It's like that, you know, that thing of, like, something you don't really want to do anyway. And so like the slightest excuse to not do it is like enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. And she talks later about, um, causing pain sounds fun, but it turns out it's really upsetting. Um, and it turns into a kind of bonding thing between the two of them of, sure. Of these two characters who have had a taste of being a dark yeah. you know, demonic spirit and uh, come through the other side of it, maybe realizing that it's not as much fun as not that it, not that Willow thought it was fun, but finding that they've lost I mean, the it, taste for it or it lost seem, the, the, the ability to desensitize. It does seem like there is a point in which Willow did sort of, get some kind of thrill out of it because like you get the whole board now sure there is the board now thing yeah yeah which you know obviously you associate with vampire willow and right there's that aspect of like it is all about the sort of 
having fun and and if you're not then you're gonna leave and go do something else mm-hmm. yeah um and I mean so okay so she goes to Anya for help in finding the others which Anya gives her good tip-offs I mean it's not gonna work but she says oh you can check the construction site you can check the school um you get Anya's bluntness um her truthfulness I should say being part of the reason of the misunderstanding of the episode because perfectly naturally she kind of says um maybe they're still mad at you and that's why you can't find them Mm -hmm. so there's this kind of sense in which everybody's uncertainty about their relationships contributes to the problem that it doesn't really um occur to anybody until pretty far into the episode that there could be something magical going on Mm -hmm. the first conclusion seemed to be that well they're they're angry so they're avoiding me or or willow got cold feet and got off the plane and that's where she is um or even that willow is responsible for the skinned corpses and she's gone evil again. So the, the magical aspect of it doesn't come along until like towards the end of the episode. For the most part, they're all kind of assuming that it's just these personal issues. Um, and Anya's suggestion kind of inadvertently contributing to that, I guess. Sure. Um, so she goes to search for them at the places that Anya suggests. And that's when we first see the, the flayed corpses of gnarls, um, which ties in well to the skinning of Warren from the previous season. Right. Right. Um, like it, right. If, if you're going to suspect was any Willow, doubt, yeah. like this is the thing that would do it. Right. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, uh, both Xander and Buffy come to the same conclusion, which is, I guess, Willow's back in town. And, you know, it, it given that they don't know what's going on with her, it's kind of hard to blame them in that situation. Um, which, and Willow doesn't even either later on when she finds out that that's what they thought. Buffy mm-hmm. kind of confesses it as this bad thing that she wishes she was better than that that she would ever think this but um yeah that's you know the natural place for her mind to go um okay and so then they go to the school which is where there's the seamless spike um which we kind of talked around a little bit um i'm not sure if there's a whole lot more to add i mean there's good like you said, the double duty of the dialogue, there's good lines about um, someone isn't here and then he says something about button, button, who's got the button, my money's on the witch. And so it's like when you hear it one time, you think he's talking about who, my money's on the witch as the killer. Um, And then the second time you realize it's someone isn't here, it's the person who's invisible and missing. So yeah, I'm not sure if there's anything. Yeah, I know. I mean, 
I don't know that there's a ton there. Um, there is um, like two maybe minor things is um, he asks for a word that rhymes with gleaming, mm -hmm. um, which is a callback to uh, whatever episode it was that um, we get like Spike's backstory where, you know, mm -hmm. he was a bloody awful poet. Um, okay. Uh, which is like when he was working on his poem before, you know, Drusilla bit him, like that was what he was trying to figure out was like, a, a word that rhymes with gleaming like there was so like he's a, still trying to write the same poem so well <laughs> just to sense that like yeah that like maybe there's even a return mm -hmm. in personality a little bit to some of that because of his soul you know again like that maybe there's like maybe this is part of what's driving him crazy is going back to mm -hmm. you know memories that are that old and and that kind of thing um yeah. Which is a pretty subtle thing. I actually, I I noticed that on the Wikipedia page. Like that's not mm. something I even picked up on. So like, yeah. you know, not necessarily something I would expect. But it it is kind of an interesting little callback, um, especially yeah. in the context of this, you know, discussion that, you know, is kind of bizarre anyway, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then also like. When he leaves, he goes, there are things here without permission. I have to check their slips, make sure they have authorization. So obviously, like, you know, in a school, that's like, you know, do you have your mm -hmm. hall pass or whatever? But like, mm -hmm. you know, we've also seen him talking to beings or spirits right. or creatures that like are maybe hang hanging about. And, and yeah. so, yeah, like, I mean, and again, like, it's hard to say what's metaphor and, right. you know, vision versus what's real but like yeah like what does that mean is that is he talk i mean like he's probably not talking about students here right like right like what is it that he's going to check on exactly right right <laughs> um and where and whatever so yeah obviously that doesn't come up there but maybe just a couple little things to yeah sort of keep in mind um well and there's also when they say there's a when Willow says there's a body, he says, tragedy, is there blood? So there's a kind of reference to the fact that he's presumably not killing and drinking anybody's blood right sure. now. I mean, um, I guess he still has the chip in, right? So I guess he couldn't, even if he wanted to. But I feel like for me, it suggested that kind of the same thing we saw with Angel when he newly had his soul back of the kind of scavenger aspect of it, of he's not really a predator anymore, that he has to sort of get by on whatever blood he can salvage from other people's uh, corpses and scenes of murder and everything like that. Mm. So it's kind of, and that being the thing that helps them find Willow at the end is they kind of set him loose and follow the trail of blood. Um, because I'd imagine it's harder to come by when you're a vampire with a soul. Uh, he's pickier about how he'll get it, I would think. So, yeah, like if he smells it and he's starving, he'll just sort of follow the scent and lead them right to the site and everything. 
which kind of in a way connects to what's what happened with angel too of that kind of desperation we saw of angel starvation and everything um we don't quite get that extreme of that with spike but i feel like that's hinted at in like the fact that he's eager to know was there blood left behind is like he's probably not getting very much of it would be my guess sure maybe that's part of the craziness You know, Angel's sort of delusions and everything seem to be related to that as well. So, um, yep. Okay. So they talk to Dawn, or they talk to Spike, I should say. Um, and then Dawn kind of steps up into the researcher role, um, which is you know, seems natural. They're kind of missing a person to do that at the moment. They've got their very Spartan three-person Scooby gang at the moment. Um, so Dawn kind of doing all the like computer and book-based research that Giles or uh, Willow might normally do. Mm -hmm. um, and so becoming more one of the Scoobies, I guess, in a more active way, and being included, not just saying she wishes she were one of them, but being an essential part of the team, I guess. Um, and in the meantime, Willow and Anya are doing spells to track the, the magic of the beast. Um, and you pointed out that the spell that they use is the same that Willow and Tara did. Uh, back in season four, I guess it was. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, which makes Anya's references to getting a little bit turned on kind of funny. Um, like, is there something about that spell that's particularly sure, uh, like sexy or something? Um, anyway. And I guess, I guess Anya's helpfulness kind of is important too. Like you kind of said, she's losing the taste for the vengeance. She's not quite feeling it the way she used to. And I think she's being more and more uh, of a Scooby, even when maybe she doesn't want to be anymore. Um, like she says, she's mad at Willow. She says she doesn't want to be with Xander anymore. And maybe those things are true, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't take too much persuasion for her to help them when they need it. Mm. So she's still kind of, I kind of like the way it's just assumed that she's part of the group, even when she's not. That, like, she'll do the spell, and they even call her to, like, watch over Dawn. And it's sort of like, okay, like, she doesn't really protest that much. Um, Yeah. You know, a little line about is it difficult or time consuming, but that's just her. It, it's a symbolic protest. She doesn't really argue too much about helping anybody. No, I mean, right. And and even like so there's even that comment that she makes of um, 
about her being surprisingly sensitive, right? Like, yeah, I, I'm surprisingly sensitive. Like, you know, that yeah, maybe she even still plays up the not caring. But we, I mean, we've talked about that before, even like yeah. how much she's like with Giles and stuff at, in mm-hmm. the season finale, you know, previously. And, and yeah. yeah, maybe she's, she's not quite as, uh, I almost say careless. Obviously that's not the right word, but like uncaring, I guess, as mm-hmm. uh, she might want others to believe. Well, and, and her, the way she takes care of Willow at the end is very reminiscent of that bit with Giles of the way she kind of, sits over the person and talks to them and says, you're doing really well. And, you know, kind of tells them what's going on and tries to be cheerful and all that. Like it's kind of the same thing. Um, so it seems like there's almost like a deliberate echo there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and not, you, you know, you don't, until that starts to happen, you don't think of Anya as the, the caretaker but that is what she's kind of becoming. Um, but I do like the way that like a line about I'm surprisingly sensitive is followed up with, what is it difficult or time consuming? Like she is, she is surprisingly sensitive, but there's still that kind of like, again, um, honesty to, you know, she wants to help, but she wants an honest opinion about what it's going to, take you know cost and everything so it's just kind of funny um okay i feel like i'm going really fast but we're over time and also i feel like i feel like i like this episode but it's also pretty straightforward um yeah so you know yeah correct me if i'm skipping over stuff but no, um, I don't. I don't think so too. And I've been kind of listening as you've been going through it, and I really don't have a ton to add. So, like, I think you're right. Like, it's not. It's not really an in-depth episode. I mean, might have a little to say about Narl. I mean, I think there's even sort of a metaphorical level of, but like, it's almost like secondary of like, mm. you know, the paralysis and like very. I mean, predatory, literally, but, like, also, like, mm-hmm. there's almost a, a sort of sexual predatorness to some of the way that he treats Willow and stuff, so, mm-hmm. but I don't, like, that's not really, it's not the main metaphor of the week or anything, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of, right. I'm, I'm not even sure that it's intended to be that way, like, maybe that's just my reading of it or something, but, like, sure. Um yeah, I mean, I guess it's the way that he kind of crouches over the victim that has yeah, and that aspect to it. Right, um, like, I mean, paralysis, like, could be almost like a date rape drug kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, where it's, you know, you know, he's kind of slurping at her. And, you know, just kind mm-hmm. of, like, the, the, the weird and creepy, you know, uh taking his time you know Mm -hmm. and clearly getting a rush out of delaying um you know the kill like he's he's it's like the process that gives him pleasure which is you know i mean 
all I know about serial killers is of course from like TV shows. So like, but that seems sure. to be like the trope, right? That it's, it's not just like, there's something about the process of the kill and that there, that there's usually a sexual or at least titillating aspect to, mm -hmm. you know, sort of the process and procedure and, uh, uh, ceremony in a way of it mm -hmm. all you know beyond just the thrill of the actual kill itself mm -hmm. um and then you know the fact that it's that he's eating her skin and and stuff like that like kind of adds to it so mm -hmm. um yeah but yeah so i mean that's way more than answering the initial question of if you're going to cast i don't think so because like <laughs> like i don't necessarily think that there's like I think it's pretty straightforward, and and while I do like this episode, and I I do think it's a really creepy, uh, bad guy. Like I don't know that it's deep per se. Sure. Well, and and I guess it's more it's a uh, which these are useful and necessary um, and important, but it's more of a like moving the characters to where they need to be kind of one of um, getting Willow back in the same place as physically back where the others are, but getting her there emotionally too. And I guess it's important to, if she just showed up and got off the plane, they could deal with weeks and months of tension and not knowing what to say to each other. But the fact that they get off and have a crisis to solve and have a moment of feeling as if they were abandoned by the other one, only to find that that wasn't true and they were really together the whole time. I feel like it kind of helps them deal with all their issues in a quick way. Like it, it forces them to, it forces Buffy to maybe confront that she doesn't trust that Willow is better. Um, and then to get through the other side of that and, you know, realize that actually Willow didn't do it and she's been here the whole time and trying to find them. Um, and I think that helps her maybe be honest about her own feelings, but also start to forgive a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the opposite is true for Willow, that she can deal with her feelings of abandonment because, or her fears of abandonment, I should say, because she finds out that they are there for her the whole time. Um, whereas if she hadn't had that confronted, maybe that would have, that fear would have lingered on. For a really long time. Um, but you feel her relief at the end. I mean, obviously, because that was like a hella creepy situation to be in. But the it's more than just being like rescued from a really creepy demon. It's also the relief of realizing that Buffy and Xander didn't leave her. That they've been looking for her and they do care. So... It kind of, the, the monster helps them deal with all of their kind of metaphorical problems, I think. Mm. Um, and then we find out that, I mean, one of the most interesting aspects of the episode to me is the fact that it all happened as an accidental thing from Willow doing a spell, not realizing it. Um, sure. Which, I mean... The episode ends well, there's lots of forgiveness and good feelings, but there's also this kind of 
note there of like, oh, geez, like she really does just make things happen without realizing it. And so you do kind of get a sense of she, her, her not being done the training yet of still not knowing what she's capable of. And she may be in a better place emotionally, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she's in full control of all of her capabilities. Yeah. Um, and it's like the first thing that happens like when you get off the plane is that she accidentally does a spell, which has like gets them all in trouble. Um, so it's like a happy ending, but also a note of like, oh, geez, that could be potentially a little, uh, a little bit of a problem. And it kind of leaves you a little bit uncertain for the, where the story's going to go, I guess. Mm-hmm. So. Anything else? Are we done? <laughs> um so one thing apparently um I I did a little searching here real quick um apparently Jane Espenson did confirm that uh there is a little golem in Narl so mm. so there is an because just when you mentioned that before that uh yeah apparently that was astute <laughs> um in, yeah. insofar as like it was intended um to kind of have a little aspect to it um yeah kind of frog like cave dweller who is creepy and sure. talks in riddles you know um right has that little sing song and and maybe yeah and there is something kind of um children's story about him in that kind of sing-songy fairy tale monster who lives in a cave you know that kind of feels like something out of out of the hobbit or something like that yeah um and the best children's monsters are really creepy so he fits with that right sure uh yeah i don't i mean yeah, I don't know that I do have much more to say about it. I'm just kind of looking at my notes here real quick. Um, you know, we continue to see Anya sort of as an ancillary member of the group, even to the point where, like, mm-hmm. she comes over and is going to babysit Don and like she and Xander are in the same room and there's no mention of him leaving her at the altar. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I mean, that's kind of momentous, like in mm-hmm. a way, <laughs> like, like, are we past the worst of that at least? Like, right. You know, um, no, maybe? that's kind of what I was getting at before of kind of saying that like, she is, even though, on the one hand, she's saying she's she's had this break from the group. On the other hand, they all kind of treat her as if she's still part of them, or at least potentially. That, like, it is kind of assumed that if they need her, they can call her, and she delivers. Hmm. So it's sort of like, is she still a full-fledged member of the Scoobies? I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends on who you ask. But, like, yeah, if they need Vomit Watch... Like she, they call her and she comes. Um, right. 
So right, yeah, she's that does seem really significant. Dependable enough to like yeah, and trust. Although she's also still a vengeance demon, so sure, you know, there's that too. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean, they trusted Spike for a long time, you know, so it's certainly not the first time that they've right. trusted people who, you know, trusted demons um, if they had reason to, so. Um, and so speaking of demons, you get Dawn, like you mentioned, doing the research. I don't know if you noticed, um, she's on a website called Demons, 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 which we had seen previously in Angel actually uh mm. cordy used it uh at one point um and there was like a little discussion about the name uh of that but so like just kind of that like very minor sort of crossover mm -hmm. you know thing um but yeah i mean uh, you know not, none of that like probably been, we could have gone without even mentioning those things perhaps but um sure. i don't i don't know that there's a lot more to say here at this point um gnarl's dead willow's here and healing herself um mm -hmm. yeah maybe maybe we'll see some problems with her magic still to come but at, at least so seems to be at least on the, if we're if we're doing our alignments again um, mm -hmm. she she's maybe more along the line of the chaotic good um, mm -hmm. but I do think that we can at least see she has a good desire at this point. right right um, a little a little unpredictable but but her right her moral compass is back aligned with true north again and everything right. um, if uh, so you know to put that in context um, of course we could bring in another Tolkien character I would I would put Tom Bombadil in that chaotic good uh, <laughs> category of like, yes, it might be okay. Like he would protect the ring, but he would also forget about it at some point. And sure. it's probably means it's not the safest place to hide. Not <laughs> the most reliable, but like, but not of his own fault. It's just the way he is. Right. It's yeah. just his nature to be yeah. like, he's not, he's certainly not evil, but he's, you know, he is who he is and he just kind of mm -hmm. goes out and does his thing. So. Mm -hmm. um, anyway. Right. All right. Well, with that in mind, we'll be back next week with, uh, so um, with BSG then. Uh, yeah. Do we have, we, we have something in between seasons? Um, well, I, should we do our season wrap up? And then I think, we start season four, but we'll start with Razor. Um, right, which, which is, is which is a kind of a TV movie. But then I, when I when you look up the production codes, they kind of list it as like episodes one and two, like as like oh they do I, okay. I think they count it as like, but I mean, technically, I think it it, it aired in the gap. It doesn't like if there's a year or something in between it is at the halfway mark. Like it marks the space between the two. So um, kind of a soft opening to season four, but um, I guess first we'll do the season three um, yeah, yeah, yeah. recap so, that we normally do. Of course, of course. So, okay. So yeah, we'll be back with that recap and then um, 
back with another episode of Angel. Sounds good. See you then.